Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hello, and welcome to The Chronology the podcast that looks back at the work of one of the world's greatest anime filmmakers, Satoshi Kon. I'm Michael Leader. And I'm Steph Watts, and we've seen the lot of them. And I'm Jake Cunningham, and I've finally woken up. So join us on our quest into the world of Satoshi Kon. So, Michael, uh, I know we are recording this in the morning, but uh, that was not a reference to to the time of this chat. Uh, We're talking about one more Satoshi Kon film, as well as a lot of other things today, aren't we? Yeah, so we have some unfinished business, some wrap-up to go through. All the way through this series, we've been talking about how really we're just three voices behind a microphone, and we wanted to broaden out the voices we'd heard from. So this is a mailbag wrap-up episode. We have some listener correspondence. We have some voice memos from people who will have perspectives on Con's work that we just can't provide. We do have unfinished business, as you say, in terms of films and history and context as well. And also it's just one final reflective moment to tip the hat to the great master Satoshi Kon himself on the 10th anniversary of his untimely and very sad death um, at the end of August. So this final grab bag episode performing many, (laughs) many feats at once. And first, we're going to talk about that short you mentioned, Jake. This is Ohio, Good Morning, uh, which came out after Paprika, very curtailed context section here. It was part of the Annie Curry 15 project in which 15 one minute long shorts were commissioned by the NHK TV station in Japan and used as a sort of filler content interstitial pieces that would land in between programs in their schedule blocks. They came out across three seasons in May, August and December in 2007 and they went online pretty quickly after that in 2008. Directors of these shorts included the likes of Mamoru Oshii, Makoto Shinkai, and Tech on Concrete director Michael Arias. But of course, we care most about the one by Satoshi Kon, which came right at the end of the third series. And I think actually is out of all of them, the one that broke out the most, and that's Ohio. 
And I really wanted to watch that with you two because I think not only is it is it his final completed work, but it feels again like something that really feeds into everything else he's done that we've covered so far. Yeah, uh, I didn't know what to expect with this. I thought uh, with a minute you probably can't do much, and it would just be more a kind of more of a extended screensaver type thing <laughs> uh, when I first switched it on. Um, but then it quickly does quite a lot in that minute. And we haven't really given a synopsis of the film, but I suppose it is just a uh, a woman gradually waking up over the course of a morning. And that's about it. Um, but in a very Satoshi Kon way, uh, her figure is fragmented and splits apart through that routine before finally coming together at the end of the film as she has properly woken up. And for us, recording all of this series from lockdown, in which every day seems to blend into the next, (laughs) and you feel like your morning routine is just a fragment of the previous day's routine, uh, this felt like a, a very real watch. I think as we said on the Paprika episode, this is also just such a great example of how Khan was innovating and excelling on a visual metaphor level. Um, we talk about how with Paprika, he was really interested in the visual ideas, the storyboarding, rather than maybe the narrative and editing ideas that he'd had in the past. And this has this beautiful visual metaphor that runs all the way through it, that when you when you wake up, your body, your whole being your conscience is fragmented you're, you you seem to be almost separated from your body you're catching up with yourself as you're waking up as you have that cup of coffee so much of this is familiar to us we, you know, the, the bedrooms of his female characters we've seen all the way from perfect blue onwards but it's given something new and fresh because he's moved into this I, you know, this absolutely astounding way of representing our experience of time and space visually and even in a minute i think that this has got ideas in it that you wouldn't see in feature length films from other people and i I think it's a continuation on the mood of paprika that we said that paprika when you look back on it it's surprisingly optimistic and it's uh quite hopeful and this has a kind of there's a sense of almost gentle companionship in watching it and you you totally relate to this person and it kind of leaves it on a note that although we have watched a minute of these odd kind of when you consider it scary images of a person being split up and then being see-through which could be nightmare stuff and again like paprika come the end of it you think that's actually quite a, a nice thing that we've seen. Yeah, surprisingly nice for a, a one minute Satoshi Kon short. Just thinking back as well to like um, the short he did as part of the anthology Memories, I think in the kind of early 90s, um, where that is also about dreaming, but in space. But that's like really kind of nightmarish and um confusing and then this is so kind of nice and optimistic and even though you kind of have that weirdness that you expect i think from watching a satoshi Kon film or that you would expect at this point um yeah it has that really nice kind of optimistic end and i think this the visual style of it has influenced a lot of 
uh, lo-fi hip-hop streams on YouTube. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I know that we've said that the, ori- the original lo-fi girl comes from Whisper of the Heart, but particularly the kind of uh, vaporwave, synthwave streams uh, backdrop, you can totally see being this. Chill beats to drink coffee too. Yeah. <laughs> But very fortunately, this is just there on YouTube. If you want to go and see it, it was was released online. And I suppose if you're following along with us, you've watched the features, maybe you've watched Paranoia Agent 2 and you just want a little morsel to to cap everything off, Ohio is there to watch. And it's just, it's so great. Even when he's making short films, he's delivering five-star quality. (laughs) (laughs) But let's tee up our first bit of listener correspondence. We thought, since we've talked so much about Satoshi Kon on the level of visual imagination, innovation in animation, we thought we'd ask one of our previous guests, Paul Williams. You might remember him from our Tokyo episode, an English animator in Tokyo. So we thought we'd ask Paul um, to give us the animator's perspective on Satoshi Kon. Hello, this is Paul Williams, and this is my audio message for the Chronology mailbag. So, um, my introduction to Satoshi Kon was the uh, the film Tokyo Godfathers, which was recommended to me on uh, a film I was working um, quite a few years ago now. I'd heard about this movie before, and I had had it in my mind that it would be more about the Yakuza than how it kind of turned out to be a film almost a bit like um, Three Men and a Baby, in that it is more about a uh, a dysfunctional family unit, if you like. Um, Although the uh, Yakuza are involved somewhat, I found the film absolutely a, a wonderful observation on basically human nature. Um, Satoshi Kon's films tend to deal with, for me, more about real characters and their place in society or their real life or sometimes their imaginary life. And even in Tokyo Godfathers you have these, um, these three main characters all kind of hiding behind behind some form of mask, um, and he's the kind of director where his films, I feel, whilst they can be appreciated in one viewing, would be even more so appreciated on multiple viewings. Um, for Tokyo Godfathers, especially, I found it to be a probably one of my favourite Christmas movies. Um, but also living in Tokyo, um, for me, it's probably the the truest representation of Tokyo. Um, and even though this was done quite a few years ago, um, the the visuals still stand up today as being absolutely fantastic for me. Um, obviously, the the quality of the animation is uh, superb. Um, but if you ever get the chance to look at Satoshi Kon's Econte, um, there's a real uh, sense of detail that you don't often see in uh, Japanese storyboarding. And his 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 storyboards are almost layout level, where you could say they they've got a very strong uh, manga influence in there. 
and I'm pretty sure you could overlay a couple of those uh, layouts and they would fit perfectly into the final film because his, uh, his drawing skills were fantastic. Um, another film I've seen is uh, Paprika, which really is a mind-bending film for me. Um, I've seen it a few times now and his, his style of directing and especially editing of scenes and sequences where he changes location and character and moments, moments in time even, um, you can see have really influenced quite a few film directors and he, he's almost got this very filmic um, approach to animation whereas um, you could argue even western animation but also um, Japanese anime has its own visual language in a way but sort of Satoshi Kon's films they, um, they really do feel more grounded in live action film and um, I think it kind of makes sense for me that Satoshi Kon was one of my favourite directors and uh, there were some similar themes that you could almost say uh, could be either influenced or inspired by Takahata-san whose films for Ghibli were very um, much based in reality and, and even he would mix um, the imaginary with reality whether you're talking about um, Only Yesterday for example um, but anyway um, this is uh, my message and I hope that it makes sense and um, I'd just like to say the podcasts are absolutely fantastic and I'm really looking forward to seeing future episodes and see where these uh, Satoshi Kon debates move forward. So thank you and have a wonderful day. Bye. So now that we've covered all of his films, including the short film, Michael, um, what was meant to be next? Well, almost chronologically speaking, right after Ohio, Kon starts production on Dreaming Machine. This is 2009. It's produced by Madhouse, as his previous films had been, and produced by the co-founder Masao Mariyama, who we'll talk about um, in this little context section. He'd worked in some capacity, producer, planning director, development exec, on every con feature and paranoia agent as well. But Dream Machine takes its title, fittingly, from a song by Susumu Hirasawa, um, and he was queued up to create more music for this film there's a quote one of the great things about these late films and these late developments in con's life is that it was happening when internet coverage of this stuff was really gearing up so we have quotes from him from interviews all around the web so this is from august 2008 with anime news network where they asked con what this next film would be and he said the title will be the dream machine on the surface, it's going to be a fantasy adventure targeted at younger audiences. However, it will also be a film that people who have seen our films up to this point will be able to enjoy. So it will be an adventure that even older audiences can appreciate. There will be no human characters in the film, only robots. It'll be like a road movie for robots. I'm already sold. 
<laughs> unfortunately we, we didn't get to see this film but production continues into 2009 you can find all sorts of info you can find production stills news posts online about it from the time but then 18th of may 2010 um con is diagnosed with terminal pancreatic cancer and only given by the doctors at most six months to live he chose not to make the news public he didn't really even tell close friends and family at that point um but he did close production on Dream Machine to spend time at home. Um, and he only died three months later, 24th of August, 2010. Um, all the way through the production, and, and even before that, we've not spoken about this, but Con had his own website and his blog that he'd keep updated. And um, after his death, um, a final blog post was uploaded to his website. And you can find... English translations of it around online, and I'd like to quickly quote from that now. Con wrote, My biggest regret is the film Dreaming Machine. There's a strong possibility that the storyboards that were created by our blood, sweat and tears will never be seen. This is because Satoshi Kon put his arms around the original story, the script, the characters and the settings, the sketches, the music, every single image. Of course, there are things that I shared with the animation director, the art director and the other staff, but basically most of the work can only be understood by Satoshi Kon. It's easy to say that it was my fault for arranging things this way, but from my point of view, I made every effort to share my vision with others. I'm really sorry to all the staff. However, I want them to understand, if only a little bit, that Satoshi Kon was that kind of guy. And that's why he was able to make rather weird anime that was a bit different. I know this is a selfish excuse, but think of my cancer and please forgive me. And later in the blog, he says... I'm grateful from the bottom of my heart that Mariyama-san gave me the opportunity to show the world these things. Thank you so very much. Satoshi Kon was happy as an animation director. Final word from Kon there. Um, it, it's such a moving final blog post. He talks about his friends, his family, uh, all, all sorts. I'd really recommend if you've developed a personal relationship with the man through his films, as we have through the podcast, go and read that blog post. Now... Masao Murayama then takes on the mantle as producer and says, how do we finish off Satoshi Kon's final unfinished masterpiece? And for years, you, you, you hear news reports. So the film was fully storyboarded and scripted and 600 of the 1500 shots had already been animated. So it was a good chunk of the way made. Of course, things like voice, voice casting and soundtracking and everything hadn't been done. So a lot of work needs to be done. So Mariyama for many years was talking about getting budgets together, getting the right director who could have the vision to finish it off. Um, but then he, by the 2016, 2017, he has a change of heart. And there's a quote here that I'd like to quote from Mariyama, who says, then I thought, even if someone could mimic Khan's work, it would still be clear that it's only an imitation. For example, if Mamoru Hosoda took the director's position, the completed Dreaming Machine would still be a good piece of work. However, it's Hosoda's movie, not Khan's. Dreaming Machine should be Khan's movie, him and only him, not someone else's. That means we cannot and should not compromise only to finish it. I spent years and finally reached this hard conclusion. So we'll never see. Satoshi Kon's Dream Machine in full. You can find imagery, production sketches, all sorts. There's that big Art of Satoshi Kon book that has some stuff in there as well. But weirdly, more recently, Mariyama-san um, has dropped hints that he's trying to get off the ground a production that's going to adapt um, Satoshi Kon's opus manga. 
and um, Hirasawa has said that he's been approached to contribute a couple of songs. So that would almost be the most fitting tribute on screen, maybe, would be to um, adapt another great unfinished work, but in a different form, the manga format, perhaps. Mm -hmm. Maybe we'll end up seeing that someday. But I suppose the context... The, the discussion around Satoshi Kon doesn't end there, with, with neither with his death nor with the, the final decision to not push through this finished version of Dreaming Machine. His films feel so relevant, current, because they're always being watched, rewatched, reassessed, re-released, reshaped. And we mentioned on the Tokyo Godfathers episode that that film has been given a whole new lease of life in the Western market and English-speaking territories because of this new dub by G-Kids. We mentioned it at the time that we'd not seen it. We have now. And Steph, you've actually spoken to one of the the voice cast of that film. Yeah, um, I was lucky enough to have a chat with Shakina Nafak, who voices Hannah in the new dub. Um, and we just had like a really great conversation, I think, about representation and kind of bringing this this film forward in time through the dubbing and through kind of reassessing some of that language that's used um yeah really really interesting and great to chat to her about that and so we have a clip from that interview that we'll listen to now but we're going to have the full chat full-on Steph and Shakina chat coming up soon in the podcast feed but let's have a little taste now of that chat a lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. My point of view as an artist uh, is, like, if you're going to revisit a story and tell it again, uh, like, how can you make it um, the, the most relevant to the, the audience of today who's going to experience the story. Uh, and so, you, you know, even though it's only, I mean, it's less than 20 years since the original, there have been tremendous strides in, in terms of like our understanding of trans identity and uh, the, the, the words we use, the labels we use. And so what might not have been considered a trans role or a trans character in 2003 
uh, I would argue might have to do with like a lack of understanding and a lack of exposure and a lack of visibility on part on the part of trans people. So that now in, in 2020, we we can look back and we can say, wow, like, we might have been using this language to talk about Hana, we might have been saying these words, but, but culturally, we understand now that there are a lot more cues and clues embedded in the character herself, communicating her transness, you know, and, um, and so we can honor that and, and make the choice to say different, you know, rewrite some words in the, in the scripts for the dub and the sub and, um, you know, be conscientious of um, being on the right side of the joke, for example. Thank you to Shakina for joining us for that. Um, but now, Michael, now we've covered all the films that do exist, all the films that don't exist. Um, <laughs> what else is there to be getting stuck into in the world of Satoshi Kon? Yeah, good question. So I think I mentioned this on our very first episode. Before he turned to films, Con was a manga artist and writer. And we've been very fortunate, due, you know, thanks to publishers like Dark Horse and Vertical, that a few of his manga works have been translated into English and are available for us to read. I mentioned um, Seraphim, which was the manga he, he did with Mamoru Oshii. There's a great collection called Dream Fossil, which is a chunky sort of as big as the phone book collection of his shorter works, maybe his ju juvenilia, if you could call it that, that they're, they're definitely an artist finding their feet. But maybe we could talk, Steph, I know you've read this one, his book Opus, which we did mention there as maybe getting a film adaptation. Um, would you recommend Opus, Steph, as the next step after watching the films? Yeah, absolutely. I think um, it's really interesting that he did this before kind of working on Perfect Blue because I think there's so much in there that reminds me of kind of Paprika and Paranoia Agent and stuff um, but it's basically about uh, a manga artist who's drawing his manga um, and he gets kind of sucked into his own manga world that he's drawn um, and his characters become kind of self-aware that they are manga drawings and the creation of this this one man just trying to meet a deadline um and there's so much clever stuff um just about that kind of one about yeah the creation of manga corners you might cut to to meet a deadline in time and how that kind of affects the characters in their um in their own world um and it's also unfinished which yeah is oh it gets to this point i think i was reading it and I was like, yeah, this is good. This is good. And then I got to a certain point where I literally could not put it down. I wasn't doing anything else. And then just as it gets to a certain point, you get this page that's like, this is all there is. It's unfinished. Con <laughs> never finished it. It's like, what? Like, no, I need to see the rest. But um, uh, it's, yeah, I would highly recommend it. Um, it's actually really weird coincidence that um, I'm reading this book at the moment uh, called I'll Be Gone in the Dark by Michelle McNamara. She was a true crime kind of writer investigating uh, this serial killer in the US that had like avoided being caught for like 40 years. Um, and she actually died before the book was finished. So what you get with that book is kind of two thirds of it is what she'd written. And then the last part is 
um, her kind of colleagues piecing together the rest of her notes and kind of saying, this is what we think the rest of the book would have been. Um, and you basically, you kind of get that in Opus as well. I think maybe it depends what edition you have. Mm. I'm not entirely sure. Um, but you get a bit of kind of, this is from Satoshi Kon's notes and sketches, what we think he would have ended it like. I think that's right, Michael. It even has a little jokey bit where I think, isn't it, Satoshi Kon many years later wrote a bit where the manga, so it's a, one of the aspects of Opus is the characters of the manga that the manga artist is drawing take him to task for not writing him in the right way. And I think mm. the characters from Opus take Satoshi Kon to task for not finishing the manga. And he's like, I'm really sorry, yeah. I'm just so busy making feature films now. I'll get to it one day. <laughs> and as you say, they, they did find um, you know, sketches and notes that are in there in the back in that sort of single red volume version that Dark Horse mm. put out. It's really, It's a really fascinating book and you mm. can completely see Unlike something like Tropic of the Sea, which is another one of his manga works that um, have been has been translate, translated and published, that you don't really see the how the line goes from that to his feature films. Opus definitely is like Satoshi Kon, the feature filmmaker, but as a manga artist, and mm-hmm. even certain threads and seeds are planted visually. There's one point where the manga artist has some sort of moment where all the pages, all the frames, all the images of the manga just scatter across the room and just drench the room in imagery. <laughs> and that, I've seen this remarks upon online, so I, I, I by no means am the only person who's seen this, but the episode of um, Paranoia Agent, where the guy who's been cramming for his exam has <laughs> the words uh, that he's been cramming uh, spraying out all over the room. There are you know, imagery and themes and threads here that absolutely resonate throughout his work. Um, it's yeah, really worth reading. And that what a fascinating mm. prospect that that could someday become a film. I wonder if that's that. Yeah. Is, is that do you think that would be a fitting approach to honouring somebody who left so much work unfinished? Well, I think it's. Yeah, interesting that we will probably never get to see Dreaming Machine, which is kind of on the way to being finished, but Mm -hmm. we could end up seeing um, an animated version of Opus. Because I guess, yeah, then there's more more time, well, more chance to, for somebody to put their own kind of spin on that work instead of having to live up to what's already been created in half a movie. Um, so yeah, I'd, I'd love to see that, but I still want to see 600 frames of Dream Machine <laughs> at some point. <laughs> maybe we, so cool. maybe we just need to wait another 30 years and Netflix want another Oscar and they'll, uh, complete, complete <laughs> another Dead Masters film. <laughs> the other side of the Dreaming Machine. <laughs> the wind. Oh, speaking of Dream Machine and it's definitely a weird coincidence with what you said about what opus is about about a man going inside a fictional world and all the characters that are uh kind of interacting with him and questioning his own reality um i watched the truman show the other night uh <laughs> and there is a scene in which a kid is reading a book called the dream machine 2 <laughs> <laughs> what yeah. that's interesting yeah it's weird actually because I think I've connected so hard with Satoshi Kon's films and like his short short stories and work because uh, I loved Stephen King when I was a teenager and I feel like there's so much of that kind of slightly 
weird horror-y element but also just so kind of crazy and i think there's even a stephen king short story i can't remember what book it's in but um where a writer writes himself into his own fiction story and he switches places with the fictional character um so yeah i don't know weirdly like stephen king clive barker almost Mm -hmm. um vibes so yeah teenage me is very happy (laughs) (laughs) but while we're on the topic of books we should queue up another bit of correspondence we've had from somebody within that broader con universe so we're very um grateful to zach davison who is a translator of manga as well as a writer on japanese culture who translated opus seraphim and the art of satoshi Kon book um, for dark horse i mean he's done such amazing work he also did the, the chunky shigeru mizuki um showa history of japan book that uh, won awards a few years ago i've got a few of his volumes of the really great manga series kitaro um which uh, really is one of those uh, you know, should be so much better known here in the west it's so fun uh, he, he translated those for drawn and quarterly a, year, you know, a few years ago and provided really great historical context essays in the back but we thought since we're broadening out our perspectives and trying to get some different points of view on con we thought why not talk to one of the people who is writing in the creative voice of satoshi con in english so let's have a listen to a message from zach davison hello my name is zach davison and i'm a writer and a manga translator as well as other things and i'm here today to talk about satoshi kong um as well or specifically as satoshi kong as a manga artist of course Everyone's familiar with Satoshi Kon from his films. I mean, I was too. I actually wasn't even really aware that he had done manga. I think I knew it somewhat. You know, I think I'd probably heard it in passing, but I certainly hadn't read any of his manga before I was hired to translate it. Um, And when I was hired, my editor at Dark Horse called me up, Carl Thorne, and told me he had a new project for me. And I'm always excited to hear from Carl, and he always brings me something something fun to do and this time he's like oh it's someone you may have heard of um satoshi kon and i was just absolutely blown away to be given the opportunity to translate um someone whose works had meant so much to me as well so the first thing that i learned really when i sat down to translate his works and actually the first thing i learned when i first got hired to translate his work just to set the scenario i came home and i was very very excited about being given this opportunity. And my wife, who is Japanese, was having a party with several of her friends who are also all Japanese. And I came in and I was like, hey, you guys will never guess whose work I got hired to translate. And they're like, who? And I'm like, it's someone really famous. Like, who? And I said, it's Satoshi Kon. And absolutely no one there had ever heard of him. And that was a big shock to me. It was when I realized that Satoshi Kon He is far more famous, I think, in the West than he is actually in Japan. You'll find far more people that are anime fans that encountered his work through translation. Um, I think the people actually in his homeland encountered his work. You know, I mean, I think maybe his awareness is growing, but he certainly has never had that same position here. But then I got into his manga, and so let's talk about his manga. So the first work of his that I translated was this comic called Opus. And Opus tells the story of a manga artist who 
becomes a, essentially opens a door into the manga that he is writing. Um, and so he enters this manga and he finds some of his characters. And um, one of the key, the main villain in this story, you know, sort of rebels against his God, rebels against his creator. And it was such a fascinating manga. Not only is it brilliantly written, but I thought that it showed that Kon, Satoshi Kon, he had always been Satoshi Kon. And that was really amazing to me, right? He came out of the gate with all of these ideas that he wanted to tell. He wanted to tell, um, you know, about the nature of reality, about the concept of creation and creator. And there's a few scenes, because I mean, I've seen a few stories like this before, you know, I mean, creator meets creation is certainly nothing new, but some of the ways that Khan handled it were really interesting to me. Um, and that one time he had um, one of his main characters and she was just sitting there crying at him saying like, you know, if you made our lives, why did you have to make us suffer so much, you know? And he's just like, well, it entertains readers. And she's like, is it really so boring happiness? You know, do you really have to hurt us in order to entertain? Because that's what it feels like. And I thought that that was really powerful um, because she's right. You know, obviously a story of a bunch of people having a happy time is not nearly as interesting as watching human suffering. And Cohn really wanted to explore that as well as just look about, you know, why did he as a creator, you know, why did he create things he loved and then put them through such hell? One of the things about Cohn's manga also is that it's largely unfinished. So with Seraphim, um, you know, him and Oshi fought too much. And so it was just never finished. Opus, on the other hand, has, it is unfinished, but it's also to me, has the most perfect coda in the world because basically he kind of like ran out of interest in the manga um it seems like and so the last pages sort of evolved into a sketch as he started stopped really doing finished work on them and they get looser and they get looser and you can see the entire project sort of just fall apart fall to pieces, right? Um, it goes from fully rendered stuff to just sort of pencil sketches. Um, and that is the ultimate statement of creator and creation, right? When the creator loses interest, the creation has no power of itself. It, it dissolves like that. Uh, and one of the other things that I love about it as, as well as, or like that I love about it, but it's so tragic, is that the last words in Opus are from the main character, Satoko, who says, I'm not sure where or when, but I look forward to meeting you again. And of course we never did. And of course that's because Satoshi Kon died. Um, and so even though he, you know, he died with this great work, this, this great comic left unfinished and Kon himself had said, you know, like he planned to go back and finish it someday. You know, it was always on his mind. that was like, well, you know, one of these days I'll go back and finish Opus. Um, and this, and he didn't, he didn't get the chance to. So when you're reading those last pages, you're just like, yeah, when this creator dies, his worlds die with him. And there will never be another person like Satoshi Kon. There will never be another person that can pick up that pen. And maybe, I mean, I shouldn't say there never will be because somebody certainly could pick up that pen and they could finish Satoko's story in Opus, but it wouldn't be the same and it wouldn't be Khan because his vision was so extraordinary and his vision was so unique 
and it would always be someone else's creation, essentially, as God switched hands with that with that pencil. Um, yeah, so that's about my time on talking about this. But I hope everyone does. Like, once again, I started as a, with Satoshi Kon as a fan of his films, um, and I became a fan of his manga just through working on it. Um, and it's a brilliant insight into, I think, who he was as a person. So thank you very much. Thank you to Zach for his contribution there. Um, so we thought we'd widen out the discussion a little bit more. And I think uh, if you follow us on Twitter, you'll know we love a poll. We love pitting films against each other. Um, so we asked Twitter uh, what the best Satoshi Kon film was. Leaving out Paranoia Agent. I'm not sure if we were uh, including that as a movie or not, but uh, Perfect Blue obviously one how do you how do you guys feel about that <laughs> yeah I, I think that's to be expected oh, i agree definitely but a fairly even split i feel like between the rest of them i mean it got 44 percent of the vote so you've got over half of those votes going to other films so paprika was second and then tokyo godfathers and then millennium actress uh i feel like maybe it might just be a case of people haven't seen Millennium Actress and Tokyo Godfathers as much just because they're a little bit more difficult to find. Or it could be Twitter's anti-TV agenda not allowing <laughs> for a fifth option in the poll to include <laughs> Paranoia Agent. We, we did have some people saying, you know, go, taking to the comments to, to writers on that. But the, but we should shout out uh, the, the Twitter user MyAnime Podcast who said, Paranoia Agent is a great series, but that would be a wild take, putting Paranoia Agent <laughs> over his film work, considering that I think all three of us did that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> to a certain <laughs> degree. <laughs> Paranoia Agent's amazing. Come on. That's not wild at all. But as always, you know, we end up talking more about the the actual machinations and the, mecha the mechanic of doing a poll than the actual results. I'd love to know what everyone's second favorite Satoshi Kon film is, and where you know when you have to just have one as a desert island Satoshi Kon film. Maybe we would all you know, we'd all go for Perfect Blue, wouldn't we? But I think it's after that that we start to differ and maybe mm. the listeners uh, would feel the same way. And again, as you say, Steph, yeah, that's very true. It's about access, but it's great to know that at least in the UK, Millennium Actress is coming our way. Um, thanks to all the anime by the end of the year mm. or into next year, there's going to be a nice sparkly Blu-ray. It's going to be fun to watch that. And no one has any excuse not to have that as their favorite. <laughs> okay. Um, now we should end on some more communication that is is less poll based and more lovely letter based because throughout the series we've been asking people to send in their messages about what they think about satoshi Kon's work and so I'll, I'll kick things off with connor holt who i think has emailed us before um who says hello michael jake and steph thanks so much for doing a series on satoshi Kon, who left us too soon but still made so many incredible works for my personal favourite, it comes down to Perfect Blue and Millennium Actress. Steph, clearly Connor's <laughs> been reading your notes. Um, <laughs> Blue was the first of his that I saw and was one of the first darker anime films I'd ever seen after loving all of the Ghibli films, and I was blown away. But I think Millennium Actress might be his most perfect film, exemplifying his love of reality versus fiction, cinematic and Japanese history, and visual and storytelling intricacy. 
it's a film that only he could have made. Do you think we'll ever see anything from Dream Machines, his unfinished fifth film? Well, I think we may have covered that last point, um, but mm-hmm. great to know why Connor's such a big fan of both Perfect Blue and Millennium Actress. I know we all are as well. And um, we have another email from Paul Jackson. I think this was sent uh, just when we had released our Perfect Blue episode. So let's read it. So he says, what compelled me to write was your discussion of Perfect Blue, specifically in relation to me mania. Your assessment of the character overlooks what I believe to be one of the key cultural references that Con draws upon, namely Tsutomu Miyazaki, also known as the otaku killer. It was Miyazaki's crimes that brought the term otaku to mainstream attention and stigmatised otaku with images of perversion and derangement. When photos of Miyazaki's room filled with manga and video cassettes were released, the media dubbed it otaku space. During Miyazaki's trial, the court heard and contested how his introversion might have been caused by a wrist deformity. In Perfect Blue, Mii Mania similarly inhabits otaku space and is marred by physical disfigurement. As you pointed out in the episode, Mii Mania's appearance is part of Con's strategy to misdirect our suspicions, but I don't think it's as simple as him being othered. Con is, I believe, drawing upon specific fears and images that would have been all too familiar for Japanese audiences. He says, looking forward to future episodes of your chronology series and beyond. So, Paul, I hope you stuck with us for the rest <laughs> of the series. Um, it's interesting, actually, I was reading an interview that I think Andrew Osman did with Satoshi Kon around Perfect Blue. And I think he'd said, like, were you uh, inspired or were you drawing on the otaku killer? And he said no. Um, but I think throughout we've we've seen that every time somebody asks Satoshi Kon, if he was influenced by a certain thing, he just said no. So maybe he was. <laughs> so let's read one more bit of email correspondence. This is from Svant Olofsson. Hello, Ghibli Tech. When it comes to Satoshi Kon, Perfect Blue really hits it out of the park for me. While I like all of his filmography, have not seen Paranoid Agent yet, none truly kept me at the edge of my seat like Perfect Blue did. What keeps it a step above for me is simply how engaging it was. The way the movie kept me wondering what was real and what wasn't, just like Mima did, made it so the story didn't lose any of its steam. Also, how it is eerily relevant today gives it that real tangible fear that helps the viewer connect with Mima's struggle. Top, top that off with some great direction and some memorable sequences, and you've got my favourite Satoshi Kon film. Oh, yeah, I, I think I think Perfect Blue. We can get behind that being everyone's favourite, right? <laughs> but uh, we'll have one final bit of voice correspondence now from uh, somebody that we admire. Really wanted to get their perspective on Perfect Blue. This is from Natalie Ung, who. Um, you know, she, she's a, a writer. She's on Twitter. Um, I really like how on Twitter she's um, very quick to take people to task for any sort of uh, orientalization or westernization of, uh, of Asian films. She works at the Asian Film Archive and is quite an expert on film from all over Asia. But we really wanted to know what she thought of Perfect Blue and got this really insightful take on idol culture. Hi everyone, I'm Natalie and I'm a writer for the website Filmed in Ito, which focuses on Asian cinema. I was so excited to find out that as Tribliotech was winding down, Satoshi Kon's work would be the new focus. I watched Perfect Blue for the first time about 10 years ago, and it remains to this day my favourite work of his. On the surface, Perfect Blue can be seen as a commentary on the exploitation of women in the entertainment industry, but I don't think that's what makes the film so disturbing and so ahead of its time. Idol culture in Asia is its own world, and Japan sets the template for it. 
To understand Perfect Blue in greater depth, it's important to understand more about idol culture. The word idol in itself means to have a fixed identity, elevated by the masses. We can trace this myth-making of the idol back to 70s icon Momoe Yamaguchi, who rose to fame during her middle school years and then retired, married and disappeared completely from the public eye at the age of 21 during the height of her stardom. Her youthful image is forever preserved in public consciousness, feeding into the myth of the eternal idol. In Perfect Blue, one of Mima's fans refers to her graduation from the idol group Cham as Dapi, which means the shedding of skin. The graduation concept was introduced in J-pop in the 80s as a euphemism for when members leave a group. Groups that took on the graduation concept would keep replacing members who graduated, creating an eternally youthful group. Dapi would take on multiple sinister metaphorical forms in Perfect Blue, starting with the serial killer in Mima's TV show Double Bind, who literally takes the skin of his victims. In Western celebrity culture, authenticity is valued. Vulnerability is seen as being authentic. In Asian idol culture, a bright and positive image is the ideal. Idols will apologize to fans for anything that detracts from this image, from falling ill to being in a relationship. In both cultures, there exists a double-edged sword. The former turns pain into a commodity, while the, re- while the latter rejects a depth and humanity in the idols. In the age of so- social media, idols are no longer expected to just perform on stage, but to share their inner worlds. They are no longer just toggling the switch between their on-stage and off-stage selves. Living itself has become a performance. And if this sounds very sinister, it's not too far off from the way we regular people live and curate our lives on social media. The difference is the heightened way in which top idols have cameras on them 24-7, behind-the-scenes content, documentaries, vlogs, live streams, and more. When does one persona begin and end? These are the questions that Perfect Blue asks all the way back in 1997 about the tightrope between oscillating identities idols would have to walk today. The madness for Mima is not in the multiplicity of the identities she has, but the loss of control over them, as well as the conflict between her desire to become an adult and the comfort of holding on to her youthful idol identity. And as a regular person watching Perfect Blue, who's a huge fan of idols herself, my takeaway is that to create personas is not to be deceitful or inauthentic, but it's a way of living and coping with the different parts of yourself and your life. To the Ghibliotech and Conology team, thank you for all the great work. I hope the team and all listeners stay safe and healthy during these uncertain times. Bye! Thank you, Natalie, for that really insightful take on Perfect Blue. So this wraps up the SatoshiCon miniseries, the Conology, for us. Um, where are we going next, gang? Oh, Michael, you, you, you know we don't have an answer for that. <laughs> <laughs> um but what we what we do know is we've got a, a lovely bunch of followers on twitter who might be able to tell us what to do uh we've i mean we've, we've had conversations about what we could do um whether if people have enjoyed this deep dive into satoshi khan's work whether there's another director with a nice kind of condensed filmography that we could give the ghibliotech treatment to uh could is is there some Ghibli adjacent titles or Ghibli related titles that we could do or could there be something entirely different um Steph uh, how many Jojo's Bizarre Adventures episodes are there 
enough to keep us going for a long time <laughs> if we do episode by episode um but yeah keen to hear from listeners uh what should we cover next what would you like to hear us talk about exactly you can let us know on twitter at ghibli attack or via email at ghibli at little.studios.com we should say though we're not going anywhere immediately we do have that interview with shikina nafak about the recent redubbing of tokyo godfathers coming up in the feed very soon and uh, maybe some more treats not long after that but until then you can keep up with all of us and all of our contributors to this episode on twitter so that was Paul at Art Poru, Shakina at Shakines, that's with a Z, Zach at Zach Davison, that's with two S's, and Natalie at Wednesday Dreams. And of course, as always, you can follow Michael at Michael J. Leader. You can follow Steph at underscore Steph Watts. And you can follow Jake at Jake H. Cunningham. Bibliotech is a Little Dot Studios production. Our music is made by Anthony Ng, our artwork is by Sophie Moe, and Jamie Maisner is our audio wizard. The show is produced by Michael Leader, Jake Cunningham, Steph Watts, and Harold McShiel. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.